welcome to Black Body Health, the podcast. This is the show where we come together to talk about the intersection of our health and our culture. Podcasting from South Louisiana, this is Brittany Castine, preacher, pastor, political junkie, and now podcaster. And I am Ideal Ortiz, your co-host with Brittany, hailing from the Bull City and a longtime public health advocate. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Black Body Health, the podcast. This is your host, Brittany Castine. And today is episode number 19, How Urban Planning Affects Black Health. I'm excited today because as our very special guest, we have our own ideal artiste who will be with us today in sharing all of her great expertise on this particular topic. So guys, so guys let's jump right on into it. Uh, Ideal, at the Center for Black Health and Equity, we well know of your work in public health, particularly and mainly in tobacco prevention. How did you get into urban and transit planning anyway? Tell us a little bit about your story there. Hey, thank you so much for the question. And I'm so glad to be a guest, even though I'm usually your co-host. So this is going to be fun. So yes, um, urban and transit planning. And thank you so much. Uh, The work in tobacco prevention was always very dynamic. And obviously tobacco prevention efforts are often closely tied to obesity prevention um, efforts as well in community. And when you get into that more expansive work, you try to make sure that you focus on community conditions that impact people's access to food, healthy foods specifically, fresh and healthy foods. And you also try to make sure that people have access to safe places for exercise and physical activity. And we all know that that has a lot to do with how our communities are built. And I just kept noticing in all of the work I was doing within public health, that some things that seemed really obvious and good for community were really hard to get done. And I mean, really hard. Like why was it so hard to get a park in certain places or a sidewalk so people could walk to a store where there are healthy food options available. It just seems like everything was a challenge when it came to that. And to grow my technical expertise in that, I joined a local commission here in the city of Durham. That commission is called the Bicycling and Pedestrian Advisory Commission. And y'all, I went down the rabbit hole because at the Bicycling and Pedestrian Advisory Commission, we got knee deep into urban and transit planning, especially as it relates to things like trails, sidewalks, bike lanes, access to public transit, and making sure all those things connect people to the things they need to do, where they work, live, and play. And so out of a sincere desire to deepen my skill set as a technical assistance and training provider for people all over the country in public health, I felt like I needed to go deeper in my own community and I went down the wormhole. Brittany, I just went down (laughs) and it has like consumed my life to the point where now 
I do a lot of independent consulting for uh, my local city and for firms that impact the community conditions related to the way the community moves and lives and plays here in the city. That's, that's excellent. And so you are a woman of many passions and, um, and it's really great to hear about your work there um, with this. But can you tell us a little bit about urban planning specifically? Can you help you know, us understand what it really means? Well, as a person who was not formally trained in urban planning to find myself as a consultant for urban planning often means that I am translating this field to the community members that often have to uh, participate in processes that will impact them directly, right? So I'm gonna do my best to lay it out plain. Urban planning is something that has been going on as early as human existence. Whenever humans decided that they needed to figure out how to arrange their spaces so that they can efficiently and happily work, live and play in certain spaces, that is technically all underneath the umbrella of urban planning. But as we know it today, it is a set of regulations, maps, and policies that basically guide how your community will be developed. In our country, we've chosen to designate that with various codes on land and how land can be used. So it designates for us often in advance where things like parks can be built, where things like schools can be built, uh, homes, and not just any homes, where can apartments versus single family homes be put? And so the uses of land and how those uh, buildings are constructed is often all underneath the umbrella of urban planning. We wanna make sure that things are done in an orderly fashion as they're developed in a city. And that has a, you know, that's important because you want to make sure, for instance, that if you're going to build a new neighborhood somewhere that there's access to sewer and water, trash services, that it's a transit connected development, if you can get that. And it's really important for us to make sure that we don't build things near nature where we might accidentally pollute a river. So it's important for us to consider all those things and that, like I said, it's underneath urban planning. Yeah, and, and really, I think that this um, conversation that we're having is particularly timely. I'm, I'm sure you also know that for the past several months down over in Washington, D.C., the Congress is debating some very historic mm -hmm. and large infrastructure uh, related bills that can impact yeah. urban planning in a very significant way. And you know, and I know um, that anytime that uh, money is involved, anytime um, regulations are involved, that sort of leaves an opportunity for some racism to exist. And so could you talk just a little bit, I'm just trying to keep it real, you know, can you talk yeah. about a little bit how racism is a driving force or an attribute or a byproduct of urban planning, as well as giving some examples? While urban planning may have started as a field with really good intentions around preserving uh, socially um, positive communities, um, pro-social community um, patterns, which means that, you know, people can walk places, they can interact in a healthy way. There's a place where you can sell things. There's places where you can play. There's places where you can live in peace that 
very quickly in the development of urban planning as the science that we know it to be now at the turn of the 1900s, um, quickly, quickly white supremacists swept in and saw this as a tool to prevent black encroachment into white communities and white business spaces. So that was the beginnings of the, the kinds of uh, policies we saw later on, such as redlining. So if you consider the early roots of urban planning for the systems as we know them now, if they started in the United States uh, in the way that we see them now in the 1900s, just consider by the time that we get to the maps and the formalization of redlining, that's the 1930s. So it only took about 10 to 20 years for local communities to figure out what they wanted these policies to look like. So I'm gonna break it down. In your local community, every community, every municipality has a map of the land that is inside of that community. And that entire map has designations or little letters that stand for something. So sometimes the letters are like OI, which stands for office and institutional. So you go, oh, okay, inside of this area, you can open offices or um, other kinds of business related spaces or build those kinds of buildings. And then other places have a residential code assigned to them. So sometimes you'll see folks with R1 or R2 or R3 and all those numbers in modern day tell us what kinds of homes can be built there and the rules related to that. Well, imagine if we go back in time that those codes don't just tell you what kind of building or what kind of density or how far back from the road you have to build something, right? Let's say that code also tells you that black people can't live in that area or that white people can't live in that area. And so these regulations basically help us to keep areas of town racially segregated. And Baltimore was one of the very first places to do that. So whenever people want to tell me where the South begins, I'm like, Maryland is clearly included because <laughs> Baltimore enacted one of the first racialized zoning ordinances in the year 1910. For those of you who think 1910 was a long time ago, I live in a house that was constructed in 1910. So within several years, that practice then went and spread like wildfire across the region. And, you know, we can't say that the folks in the North were much better because it's really a lot of Northern urban planning consultants that created the language that was adopted in a lot of these local ordinances throughout the country. So this is how we end up with segregated communities by regulation. And there were some people who were like, well, separate but equal is okay, right? And it's okay if we isolate and quarantine blacks to certain parts of town and whites in another part of town, that's okay. Because as long as we protect those communities and make sure that they have all the amenities, right, that they deserve, then we can have separate but equal. And so some people even tried to say that this was a way for the black community to have amenities in their spaces that they previously did not have access to. And I think we all know what happened in history there. What happened is this, these segregated spaces, much like the school system that we see in you know, Supreme Court cases, we realized that separate was not equal and that the communities that were segregated for a black resident did not, were not able to enjoy things like green space, parks, 
the right kind of plumbing. And so you see a lot of issues with sanitation in these communities. They didn't get the same kind of service in terms of like trash pickup and cutting back hedges and trimming trees. Um, the things that the rest of the city enjoyed did not come to happen in black communities in designated black communities. And so, and I, and I call it that way because that's exactly what happened. Urban planning uh, professionals throughout the country designated spaces to be black, designated the lack of amenities and services to those communities. And as a result, the property prices in those areas plummeted. And that meant that if you bought a house in those areas, it wasn't, it wasn't really worth as much as it might've been if it were on the other side of the literal tracks. So clearly that's a lot there, right? And we know that, uh, as you indicated, there was a lot of blatant racism. Um, I would surmise that, you know, uh, policy is not as blatant, but there are some creative things that we're seeing in regulations even to this day. But the other piece, though, ideal is that, you know, we can be sure that decisions and policies and practices from years and years and years ago are still affecting communities today, right? And so one example is when we think about infrastructure and interstates and where interstates are built and how they've divided and sliced up neighborhoods. Um, and that stuff has like not been really reversed. We're still having to deal with a lot of that stuff even now. Yeah, so, you know, I live in Durham, North Carolina and we, and, and the, and the, we live with the legacy of the, Durham Freeway, Highway 147, which cut through the center of town. Essentially, this highway was built so that whites who worked at Duke and other large institutions in the area could come to the city without having to drive through Black spaces. And the tragedy of the Durham Freeway, which is a, a story on repeat across the country during the era of urban renewal, is that it cut through the most, one of the most prosperous parts of our community for the Black residents of this area. So the Haytai community is where over 300 businesses existed. And uh, many Black-owned businesses and Black-owned homes were cut down to make way for the travel of white folks who did not want to be inconvenienced driving through the natural streets and grid uh, of the city to get to their jobs. They wouldn't even live in the city of Durham. They lived in other parts. They lived further away. They lived in the suburbs, but they wanted their highway to make transit for them convenient. Um, what that does though, is that the remaining residents in here and the Durham freeway is in my backyard. I can walk to the Durham freeway from my home is that the noise pollution, the um, exhaust and the fumes from the cars, and also obviously the economic impact of that has had a vast impact um, on the health of our residents. And we're talking about a time in which everyone impacted by that are still pretty much alive. This only happened but 50 years ago. Um, and it's obviously it started earlier than that, but the, 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 the remnants of this are very, very recent in our historical past. And our, com our community has not fully recovered from that. Um, and we see the disparity in health outcomes for black residents in Durham. And it can almost all be, much of it can be connected to this displacement, 
this economic hit that the Black community took, and then also the fact that the remaining Black residents are in such proximity to pollutants and noise in this way. And that's become a commercial corridor there where, you know, there are cement plants, asphalt plants, chemical plants all along that area. And residents have often reported being sick directly after those plants were put there. So initially, right in the lead in, we talked about how the um, Biden administration and members of Congress are currently debating some Mm -hmm. massive infrastructure opportunities. How do we reverse this and make sure that history does not repeat itself? Yeah, I mean, one of the main things is that we have to stabilize existing communities that might be near these projects. Um, There was a victory for a small neighborhood here in Durham that refused to um, move and to have its community torn apart. And they were successful in maintaining their neighborhood as contiguously as possible and as undisturbed as possible by the freeways route. And so the freeways route had to change alignment slightly to avoid this community. And so um, with infrastructure, we we often think about highways, but we have to think about trails too. There's a lot of people who are applying for money through the federal government for multimodal and green kind of transportation. And it's important for us to know that green transportation is not innocent of displacement either or of creating uh, issues with gentrification. Wherever the corridors of these projects will go, we must look at how we can stabilize land and ownership of land along these corridors because what we now know is the more attractive projects, like I said, greenways and other sorts of things, Look at the Atlanta Beltline and what's happened there. It's become a massive force for displacement and trails like that can apply for state and federal dollars to support their being built out and developed. And what we saw was homes that used to be for, you know, worth $40,000 in black neighborhoods are now going for half a million dollars and those black families are nowhere to be seen. So I think it's really important for us to offer stabilization um, by a variety of different mechanisms. If people are in, in um, danger of losing their home because of back taxes that are owed um, or repairs that they can't afford to make, maybe because they're on a fixed income, we have to make very aggressive packages to right this wrong. Some people won't like that, but these rules were racialized at the very beginning. We didn't do that. So we can make racialized rules for the solution. We can't have race blind tools for the solution and the descendants of these issues. You know, I find that to be interesting because I read an article just a few weeks ago uh, related to an area here in Louisiana, the historic Treme neighborhood in New Orleans, which we know was divided, right, because of some of those policies way back in the 20s. Um, But the Biden administration is making, um, uh, through their uh, transportation priorities a $20 billion fund to reconnect urban neighborhoods that were blighted by interstate highways. And so this shows that there's some progress being made uh, and the work of activists like you and others should continue that good fight to bring attention to this issue. But that's a that's a nuanced kind of development. And I want us to be really clear that even as we think about deconstructing these highways, that we will have to make sure it doesn't become a land grab for predominantly white and wealthy developers. Um, It has to be thought of as how does reclaiming this land bring benefit back to the most marginalized residents of an area that were, um, you know, uprooted to begin with. 
people have found a way to adapt and build culture. Even the highway in New Orleans, there is a bevy of life that is occurring underneath the bridges and over um, passes of these um, highway developments where they've found a way to build culture and community there. We cannot disturb that for the sake of ideological purity. We have to figure out how we really get to the root of these issues and just ripping it out of the ground is an oversimplified solution. Absolutely. Um, One question that I have. So how do you tie all of this stuff to health, right? Where's the health impact in all of this? Absolutely. So, you know, when you've got um, people who are pushed, you know, that are marginalized people, (laughs) people who we do not see as worthy of the full benefits of uh, tax funded amenities, we're not just going to push them anywhere. Um, our, Our country has a history of saying, okay, indigenous people, we will give you your land. We're just gonna put you on land that is not desirable, land that is not fertile, land that is close to pollutants, land that is stripped of the things that people need to thrive. And so black and brown residents in communities through urban planning policies were often pushed to the parts of a city that were closest to industrial companies, to very industrialized spaces that have lots of pollutants near um, dumps and waste uh, management, uh, to places with lots of noise, to places that were far away from nature. And we all know that that's really important. And so we we know now, right, that very little of one's health has anything to do with how often you're at the doctor. And that the majority of your health has to do with your environment and your community. And so what this entire scheme of regulations has done is make it so that black and brown people have less access to green spaces, to functioning sidewalks, to places to play that are safe, to places that are unpolluted. Um, And that does a lot of damage overall, that kind of chronic um, pounding of the body by these less than healthy dynamics does create an issue where you've got more stress and that affects your hypertension. The pollutants in the air causes issues to your lungs, whether that's asthma or other issues and other kinds of infections. Of course, there's the impact to heart disease um, and obesity when you don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables because I don't even use the term food desert. I call it food apartheid. Deserts are natural occurrences in many situations, but food apartheid is about policy and man-made choices. And there is a choice by even profit-making food distributors and sellers to not stay located in black and brown neighborhoods and leaving for wider spaces. So it's it's very much a choice, um, a business choice by the organizations. But like I said, even when they make profit, they'll leave black and brown neighborhoods. Um, So that tells me that there's something more racialized, more compelling around racism happening. But all those things compounded together do make for terrible outcomes within the Black community. Um, and that's why, and, and, and another health issue is injury, right? When you're close to things that are more dangerous or you don't have the infrastructure to move about safely, then yes, the other health issue you have is not just you know what's happening inside the body, but harm can come to you by way of violence, injuries, accidents. Um, as we know, you know, if you don't have sidewalks and bike lanes, you can be struck by a car. 
Um, so those are the kinds of things that impact black and brown people as a result of their environment that impacts their health. So clearly we can appreciate that every neighborhood is different and sort of the resources and the issues in every neighborhood is different. But can you just talk a little bit about some of the things that you're involved with that could potentially exist in some of the communities where some of our listeners uh, live? Yeah, so um, currently right now, most of the Maya consulting work is around public engagement to make sure that the data that informs master and comprehensive plans in my community are deeply informed by the most marginalized voices. So I'm a specialist within my practice around um, attracting the most historically marginalized voices to the conversation. That would be low-income people, people who live in public housing, black and brown residents, um, and people with disabilities. And so making sure that those um, documents that guide often 20 to 30 years into the future, what a municipality looks like, um, making sure that feedback from these marginalized communities is in the data that then gets written up into these reports and these documents is where I come in. Um, most recently, one of the more concrete kind of delivery, not just sort of like outreach and feedback projects I've been a part of, is a project called Shared Streets. So obviously during the pandemic, people weren't comfortable sending their children to parks, you know, around the other side of the neighborhood because they needed to supervise their children and make sure that they weren't playing with other people um, and coming into too close of a contact given COVID-19. So we had to figure out how can we get people in urban context and historically black neighborhoods to feel comfortable being outside, walking, rolling, or playing on their street when we know that so many of those smaller neighborhoods still face traffic concerns and speed concerns from cars. So Shared Streets is a project that was meant to assist with some traffic calming in some black and brown, local black and brown neighborhoods where we engage local residents in a process of designing what they think the traffic calming measures should look like so that people could feel safer using their street right in front of their house to be outside um, with enough space to move around and get their exercise and connect with their neighbors safely. Another thing I think has been cool, I haven't been as directly in, involved, but I see a lot of folks in my neighborhood doing micro farming on the inner city lots. And the first time I saw this done at a really high level, uh, shout out to artist and Henry Cruz of Henderson, North Carolina. They've been getting the city to lease them lots in downtown Henderson uh, for a dollar, like a dollar a year. And then they got the USDA to come up with a definition for gap certification for these micro lots. So they're getting the land for a dollar, they're healing the land, they're growing things on it. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that instead of empty or dilapidated lots, that there's so many mental health and wellness benefits when you turn those empty spaces into places that things grow, where people can sit and enjoy a generally more attractive and safe space. But for a dollar a year, they get to grow things on there. And with their GAP certification, that means they can sell what they grow to churches, schools, local hospitals, and even farmers markets, which makes it a pretty cool financial uh, sort of like closed loop where the dollars go back into the community and maintain the farm. That's really cool. Well, you know, I do, as we prepare to wrap up this particular um, episode, is there anything else that you think our listeners should know about this work or about some of the things you've done? Yeah, like, 
get in touch with your local planning department. Um, the planning department often struggles in any given city across the United States with public outreach. They are good at regulation, but not always public comments and public engagement. And I think that getting connected to any of the planning processes, join a local commission that is um, talking about how your community is going to develop. Right now, Durham is undergoing two major processes. We're revising our comprehensive plan and our transit plan. And that's gonna dictate for the transit plan alone, just the transit plan, where the next $500 million of transit tax money is going to go over the next 20 years. So this is our plan from now to 2040. And I think that it's like, it's insanely important for black and brown people to be connected to these kinds of processes because we're the ones who depend the most critically on the services that are yielded from these plans. Well, thanks everybody uh, for checking us out on episode number 19 how urban planning impacts Black health. Well, that wraps up this episode of Black Body Health, the podcast. Until next time, this is your co-host, Brittany. And ideal. You have a great day. Thanks for tuning in.